You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. I'm joined unconventionally in studio by Billy Galenko, as always, but also with our director of wine, Adam LaPierre, who is not unused to taking the spotlight on the Vint Podcast, as we had him fill in for Billy a little while back. How are you all doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me back, gents. Yeah, and I am happy to be here as well on a rainy day in Los Angeles. I was worried I wasn't going to have internet. It's here. Two nights ago, I had the air conditioning on. Last night, I had the heat on. And today, I just turned everything off completely and put on like four layers of clothes. So I don't know what's going on on the East Coast, but LA rain sounds better than whatever we're doing. No, no. It's just basically everything shuts down and people drive slow. It's like snow in the mid-Atlantic or (laughs) a blizzard in Minnesota. Same thing. Yeah, we, we used to get off school because it was too windy sometimes because they were afraid the buses would blow over on a bridge. So that's a real thing. Other than weather, today we're talking about provenance. Basically, we want to give users and just listeners to our podcast in general a look into how we ensure quality in the assets that we source, a little bit into what kinds of considerations we make in terms of which partners we work with when we are sourcing assets, where we store those assets, again, how we ensure and maintain quality over time while they're you know, kind of under our purview and, and we're managing them. So we brought in Adam to kind of shed a little bit of light on that process to kind of share some of his experiences in other contexts within the industry. Yeah, Adam, why don't you just tell folks, give people an overview again of what you do and just a little bit about your background, and then we can get into some question asking and answering. Absolutely. So my role at Vint is Billy and I work together to identify interesting assets for investment. And we basically curate and build our collections. We source from our global supplier network. We are also responsible for all of the preparations related to the SEC paperwork, developing the investment thesis, tracking the investment performance over time, executing exits to maximize returns. And while wines are in the time between the when the collections are subscribed and when the assets are exited, we are also responsible for managing the logistics, the storage, and safe care of the wines under our management. A little background on me. Before joining the Vint team full-time, I was the president of a company called Vinfolio, which was is a fine wine retailer, one of the largest fine wine specialists in the United States, really focusing on the same category of wines that we are interested in here at Vint. Although the main difference was we were selling wines for people to collect or consume them, not so much for investment purposes. I'm a master of wine. And I've been in the wine business for over 20 years, really working in lots of different positions along the supply chain, both for producers, for importers, and as a buyer. Awesome. Yeah. And what many listeners may be kind of interested in is... So Adam's our, our director of wine. He's been in the industry for many years. So what he was able to bring is 
after we were, had been running for about a year since our first collection, he came on in June. We've basically greatly expanded our network of trusted partners and as well as where we store wines. And a lot of this is just based on Adam's experience and part of like the key part of the understanding how this all works in the wine industry is really knowing what to look for and how to identify trusted partners and then continuing to kind of build relationships with them. So by bringing Adam on, we were able to kind of basically quadruple the amount of people that we worked with because he was able to build these trusted relationships and understanding over time. So today we're hoping to kind of pull back that curtain a little bit about kind of what we're looking for and what Adam's kind of learned and what Vint kind of employs on a regular basis. So on that note, can we talk about the types of partners that we work with and some of the ways that maybe high level that they ensure provenance and we work with them to ensure provenance? Yeah, I think our one of our key sort of risk management strategies is working with a fairly narrow range of trusted suppliers and getting as close to the producer as possible in our sourcing efforts. So we are sourcing wines from wineries directly. We are also sourcing from negociants and other merchants. But the most important thing for us is one working with a network that we fully trust and that has a strong reputation, is well capitalized, and is is reputable and has a long track record of of integrity. And so that is like first and foremost. And then I, I guess we will talk a bit about how we go into investigating specific assets, but I think that's you know most important. And then as it relates to our storage facility partners, we kind of do the same thing. So it's really looking at the best in class providers of storage for the types of wines that we deal in. So, you know, obviously there are lots of different warehousing options. One of the things that's pretty interesting is if you look at the way that a lot of the wines, a lot of wines and spirits are stored and distributed in the US today, a lot of these warehouses don't even have you know, temperature or humidity controls. And this is maybe not as important with certain wines that are fast turning, but I've been in warehouses in Virginia as an example that are not temperature or humidity controlled and are storing, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases of wine. So there is a real difference, you know, in quality. And so for us, obviously, finding the the players that are really operating at the absolute highest level, both from the standpoint of merchants and warehouses and logistics providers is paramount for us. Can you take a step back, Adam, and just give like a couple sentence definition of provenance? It's a word we hear across a number of different asset classes, but can you just give sort of a summary? Yeah, I think, well, provenance, I, I, I don't know that I can give you the official definition, but the way that I think about it is is the establishment of an asset's life cycle up until the point that you take ownership. So really being able to establish where an asset has been stored, who has owned it, and where it ultimately came from. And having line of sight and confidence around provenance has a, you know, a, a very important impact in how an asset will appreciate and what the resale value of an asset is over time. And this is, you know, I think particularly important for wine, obviously, as a, a perishable good, one that is 
has a very long drinking window. So a wine that can age for 50 years, obviously. Few hours in suboptimal conditions can have a dramatic impact on quality. So really, Provenance is, is just so key for, for rare and fine wines that are age-worthy. Nice. So on on that note, talking about the storage again. So when we are storing these things and they're going through different processes, we reference a couple terms once in a while. We say in bond storage and also to your other note, we talk about transportation that has to do with where wines are stored, but also the transport itself has an impact on the wines. Can you quickly touch on the in bond and also, you know, the impact of transportation and where we store our wines? Yep. So in bond uh, references, in particular, a network of warehouses in the UK. And basically, uh, in the UK, there are bonded warehouses, which are specially commissioned and facilitate the storage of wines without having duty or tax paid on them. So the advantage is that you know if you're trading wines, you can acquire wines without having these duties or taxes levied. And you can also resell them to another buyer without incurring these taxes. Um, the other important aspect of this is only professional warehouses, very specific subset of professional warehouses that have passed a series of quality tests and adhere to certain regulations can qualify as a bonded warehouse. The second that you withdraw a case of wine from a bonded warehouse to put it in your cellar, for example, one, you incur these duties and these taxes, but the wines can never be, uh, can never regain a bonded state. So those are then known as duty paid. So it's important because if you are purchasing bonded wine, you have, or wine that is stored in bond, you have confidence that it has been professionally stored since release and has never left that network of professional warehouses. So you are basically ensuring a certain level of quality as it relates to storage. You also know that it's never been in the hands of a consumer in terms of a private seller. So it gives you a lot of confidence around the authenticity as well. Yeah, so, um, so on that note, like we were saying, a lot of them, the bonded warehouses are in the UK. So I kind of asked three questions there. So the in-bond, basically means came from the winery, went directly to this network, has always been professionally stored. And like you were saying, a bunch of these happen to be in the UK and there's the same quality that are also in France. And we keep a bunch of our wine in the UK. Can you talk about like, aside from just the quality, why strategically it might make sense, both from a not wanting to move the wine a lot, but also, you know, keeping our optionality open for sales? Yeah. So one other key benefit of storing in a bonded, in a bonded network is again, you have there are some records and line of sight into storage that can be proven, right? So if I go to a prospective merchant who has something that I'm interested in, I can ask them, you know, where this wine was acquired, and they can tell me, hey, this wine came in upon release, so they they know that it was received into this bonded facility as soon as it was as the year that it was released from the winery, and it's basically never moved. Other advantages to storing wine um, in under bond in Europe, for example, to your point, Billy, is that it gives us the greatest amount of flexibility for the purposes of reselling wines in the future. Wines that are 
this when we're talking about European wines, wines that are stored under bond in pristine condition with and having never moved, basically give you the, the best flexibility. So we could resell those wines, obviously, in Europe to merchants in the UK or back in France. We could sell those wines to Asian customers. We could sell those wines in the US. We basically have complete flexibility. If we were to move some of those wines from Europe to the United States, we would need to add certain labels to those bottles in order to import them. Those are called strip labels. Once we put strip labels on those bottles and we bring them into the US, it degrades the provenance. It degrades the resale value to a certain extent because those wines have less, left the bonded system. They've traveled over the ocean or, or in the air. Um, and so it, it introduces more risk from the standpoint of condition and quality. If we're selling those wines in the US, that's fine. But again, if we ultimately identify an opportunity in the UK to resell them, we'd have to sell them at a discount. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And for those who are kind of wondering when wines are transferred you know, overseas, especially this caliber wine that we work with, they're all in refrigerated containers. They're all very well packed and or potentially even flown over. So they're, it's all very safe, but there's just that the movement and sometimes the potential for you know just being knocked around or potentially broken is is part of what you know people are concerned about with that. Yeah, so. exactly. You want to move wines as infrequently as possible. Again, to your point, we we only work with really one logistics partner who is strictly focused on fine wine and spirits. This is what they do. So we have total confidence in them. But yeah, the more the more movement you introduce, you're introducing some risk there. And and again, for a prospective buyer, a trade buyer, there is a trade off there. Just a quick note about our uh, our logistics. Yes, we do a both ocean freight and air freight when we are shipping wines, but everything is temperature controlled from end to end. So that is from the moment that it's picked up from the supplier to going into a bonded warehouse to going to the airport, end-to-end temperature control. And when we ship containers, we also have temperature loggers that basically give us total line of sight as to any fluctuations in temperature while the goods are in transit. What's our intake process like when, you know, after wines have been moved from one place to the next, when they come into, whether it's their final well, for us, their, their final storage facility or wherever it may be. What's the intake process like? Maybe talk a little bit about the three different or a few different kinds of packaging that the wines might be in when they get there. Yeah. And just who manages that process and, and how do we ensure that those assets are tracked as well once once they come into the final facility? Yeah. So we don't own any of our storage facilities. We are using third-party service providers for logistics and storage. But as I said, these are really the best in the business. When goods are received and inbounded, we can... Well, I would say there's sort of three main configurations that you might that we might encounter when we are receiving inventory or purchasing inventory. One is in the wines being packed in the original cases. So those are OWCs, original wood cases, or OCCs, original cardboard cartons. We strongly prefer sourcing wines in the original cases. Again, this gives us greatest level of confidence around 
how they were stored and provenance and authenticity. When you think about original cases, in particular OWCs, there's actually one sort of one higher level of quality, which is a banded OWC. And you'll find this from you'll find this type of case from very from the top producers like DRC, for example, or First Growth Bordeaux, Petrus. When the wines are packed at the winery, they actually put a band around the case. It's like a like you might find if you were getting a you know a freight shipment, right? These big, these like thin plastic bands that you need to cut in order to access the case. So some wines are actually shipped in banded OWCs, and the band is identified to the winery. So this gives you again an even greater level of confidence that no one's scuffed the labels, for example, right? So the wines are shipping in the same carton, in the same manner that they were released from the winery. So there's banded OWCs, there's OWCs, and then there's loose bottles. We will often purchase, or we will sometimes purchase spirits in loose bottles, if because that's how they are packed. They might come in a, in a you know, presentation case. Occasionally, we will buy um, high-end burgundy in loose bottles because it's almost impossible to source certain quantities or case quantities of certain wines. So as an example, we've got a collection upcoming where there are three unique wines. Two of those wines are in OWCs or OCCs, in fact, original cardboard cartons. And then one of the wines is six loose bottles. And the reason that I purchased those six loose bottles is because they were all coming from the same supplier. Um, They were bonded inventory, but there were zero cases of those of that particular wine on the US market or on, on the global market, in fact. So there was no option to purchase those wines in in, a, in a, an original case. So loose bottles, as, as I just mentioned, is the third way that we would see bottles coming into a, a warehouse. The process no, not 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 ever sorry to cut you off, but not every producer uh will package in you know a wooden case. Right. Is that correct? So it's not it's not like, you know, uh, cardboard is necessarily, you know, totally lesser. It may, may right. just be that 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 producer doesn't even package the wines in that manner. Right. Exactly. You'll find, you know, most of the Bordeaux producers are packing in OWCs, DRC and some high end Burgundy pr- producers pack in OWCs. But a lot of Burgundy producers packing card cardboard cartons like Russo as an example. Fantastic producer. Wines selling for you know, three thousand to seven thousand dollars per bottle, and these wines are shipped in cardboard cartons. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything either way. But for us, again, the point is getting these wines in one as close to the source as possible from our sourcing from a sourcing perspective, and then in the condition that is as close to as released from the winery as possible. Yeah. Another just quick note before you hop on there, Brady, is the banded OWCs. The bands are like kind of hermetically sealed or basically it's impossible to reconnect the bands once they're disconnected. And that's added to the OWC because a lot of the the wooden boxes are just the tops are nailed down, but you can pry open the tops and, and access the wines. So this just shows basically that box itself hasn't been opened before. Right. And I will say, okay, first step would be when the wines are coming into one of our facilities, if it's an abandoned OWC, we cut the band, we open the OWC, we inspect the content. So we're not, you know, putting abandoned OWC into storage without doing an inspection. 
but for us, it's an additional sort of level of or indication of quality. When wines are received, they are un- the cases are opened, the individual bottles are inspected. What they are inspecting is the fill level of the bottle, meaning how much wine is in there, any signs, looking for any signs of seepage or heat damage, checking the capsules, checking the labels, and basically assessing the overall condition of the bottles. We are really dealing mostly with fairly recent releases in the scheme of things. And so, you know, we don't, one, we would not accept any of anything less than pristine condition for the assets that we are sourcing. But if you are sourcing older bottles, you know, for consumption, you might accept a lower fill level or some scuffing of the label or some damage to the capsule, things like that, that might happen when something is is being handled. But for us, this is not a concern and not not something that we would consider. Um, and then the other thing that happens is the bottles are authenticated. Obviously, certain wines are faked more than other wines, but the warehouse basically operates with a risk matrix, really looking at wines that are potentially at the highest risk of being faked. And they are checking the security features that the producer has added to the packaging and basically going through a checklist to authenticate the bottles. Once the bottles are authenticated, then they're put into our storage location. Every case that we own and and are managing is assigned a unique rotation code. So it's unique to us. And then we also have the team capture photographs and provide us photographs for our records. And then by by way of insurance, I think this is a question that I specifically get from investors a lot. Can you tell us about some of the considerations when it comes to insuring the assets? What sorts of events are we guarding against, whether that be a a bottle dropping or or, something breaking? What are the safeguards that we have in place to protect our investments and the assets and and our investors from something like that happening? So everything that we are managing is fully insured at replacement value, which is important for us because these wines and spirits are extremely rare. Um, many people insure their wine assets, you know, at the cost that they paid. But for us, you know, if if a bottle of DRC was broken three years into the future, you know, re- re- getting reimbursed for the cost that was paid for the asset won't quite get us there. So we need to be focused on replacement value, which would obviously capture price appreciation from the time that we closed a collection until any type of loss might be incurred. One of the nice things is with the storage facilities that we work with in Europe, insurance is basically part of the program. And the goods are insured at full replacement value, really for any type of loss that might be incurred. And then for our domestic goods, we maintain separate policies that, again, give us the level of coverage required for the amount of goods that we're storing in a specific facility. And then we also have insurance for goods, marine insurance for goods that are being transited from one location to another. So basically from end to end, goods are fully insured at replacement value. Yeah, there's 
people might wonder about marine insurance, but there's that famous story. I think it's one of the earliest vintages of Pingus was actually on a ship that sunk. The wines weren't like damaged. They just disappeared because the whole ship sunk. So definitely important to have. So as we're going through, I guess we've talked about kind of what the intake process is. How do we do a little bit of our vetting ahead of time? And how does that vetting differ based on and maybe like the sources or the how we're looking at the items for spirits and wines? Yeah. So in many instances, it depends on the asset. But in many instances, when we find something that we are interested in, we're curating a collection, we will enter into a tentative agreement to purchase the assets. In many cases, that agreement is pending receiving photos or some additional documentation that shows the origins of the assets, especially for the the highly rare assets. We will also almost always investigate with the prospective seller where the wines have been stored and get comfort around where they came from. So for example, in the Millennium Bordeaux Millennium collection that we just that we're offering now, obviously these wines are over 20 years old. So you don't just want them to come from any location. We purchased these from a negociant, so a merchant in Bordeaux who buys directly from the chateau. And the wines that we procured have basically been at the negociant's warehouse, the same negociant's warehouse since they were released from the chateau. Um, so we know that they were collected in probably 2002 from the chateau, moved maybe 10, 12 miles to the negociant's warehouse, and basically have never moved ever since. So that's the, t- the type of dialogue and investigation that we'll have with every asset. And again, with assets that are more scarce, maybe a bit older, we will do a deeper dive around the provenance and obtain documentation to establish that provenance as well. How, 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 does, how does that differ with our spirits assets, you know, wine versus spirits? I mean, maybe from, from the top, starting from the top, does do things like climate, humidity, all the considerations that we took in that we considered for wine. Is that the same for spirits as well? Spirits are less are less perishable from as from a comparison to wine in that temperature or humidity fluctuations really are um, less critical from the standpoint of quality. That being said, high temperatures can be a problem because of the high level of alcohol in the spirits can induce seepage and other issues around uh, around the integrity of the packaging. So, you know, that's key for us. Maintaining stable temperatures is important, but maintaining like ideal cellar temperatures is not as critical. But same same type of process around inspecting condition of the assets. Today there are fewer there are fewer fake bottles of the types of whiskeys that we are sourcing than than there probably are for for wines. And the security features around the types of spirits we're sourcing are a bit more uniform and overt. So a lot of the spirits that we source have uh, proof tags, which are a lot of the the bottles of wine we have have proof tags as well, but 
different producers are kind of using different a different suite of security features. But the Karazawa Geisha, Geisha whiskeys are one example where all those bottles have proof tags. The proof tag basically has a like a pattern, a bubble pattern that you can validate and match online. So there's a, a, a series of numbers and a bubble pattern. You can go to their website, punch in the, the numbers. It'll present three different bubble patterns. You identify the pattern that aligns with the proof tag that you that's on your bottle. And it will tell you if it's authentic or not. So there's some pretty like straightforward ways in which we can validate authenticity around spirits. So for those two reasons, we are a bit more flexible in our sourcing process for spirits. One, because again, the long-term storage is less critical and authenticity is more easily established, especially with the contemporary releases that we are focused on. In that way, we are open to sourcing some of these assets at auction where there is a you know an, an intermediary in between the buyer and the seller even that being said we work with only reputable auction houses for the purposes of sourcing so we also we always want to have comfort around the purveyor what their process is for authentication and verification of all of these things that we've discussed around provenance and ownership and then we do our own due diligence around authenticating the assets before we purchase them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to note that some of these special edition limited bottlings are just so ornate and uniquely packaged that it's like it wouldn't be worth the squeeze (laughs) for some of them. Anybody to try to fake them. It would take hours and hours and hours and days to make one bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. And I, and that you'll find that in certain instances in the wine space as well. And now it not, it's not as difficult, but, uh, you know, many producers have very special glass bottles, embossed bottles that are difficult to fake. But yeah, in the, in the whiskey space, there's a, there would be a lot of effort required. And I think what's, you know, what's more common in the world of whiskey is just to sell things that you don't own. Like, You've got a business where you are getting people to invest in a bunch of casks that don't actually exist. I think that's the most kind of the more common play for bad actors in the spirits world. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, my uh, on the bottle side, I was thinking of the Glenn Farkless Art Pagoda series. Those are right. <laughs> absolutely insane bottles. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> so I guess from our point of view, again, taking one step kind of forward, I guess, and backwards at the same time in terms of vetting, what are some things that would immediately exclude a wine or a spirit from being considered? Was there anything that we could tell, you know, in those initial conversations or if something does, you know, get flagged by one of our storage houses, what what would immediately be a a no-go? Well, again, I think for us, especially on the wine front, the expectation is always that the assets we are sourcing are pristine. Because anytime you have a condition issue, to me, it introduces doubt around the quality of the liquid and also the resale value in the future. And I want maximum confidence of both of those things, right? So anytime I am encountered with a condition issue, that's a problem for me on the wine front. Again, these are things that are sort of inevitable with older wines in many cases, especially the, as the wines 
when you're talking about real rarities. But that's not so much our focus anyways. Our focus is mostly contemporary releases where we can you know, eliminate as much risk as possible through the process. Obviously, again, if we are talking about pristine wines, but there are concerns around, if there were ever concerns around the um, you know, sort of the level of clarity or detail that could be provided around the source of supply, it's not really worth the effort or, or introducing the risk. So for me, you, you know, we've kind of got to tick all the boxes around having total confidence in who we're working with, having total confidence in how those wa- those products have been stored and how they were acquired, uh, and having total confidence that the condition is perfect. Yeah. And, and another layer that we do, we, we've had a few private collectors, especially on some whiskey fronts, bring us their collection and they say, oh, these are my prize collection. They're, they're worth this much and they put a value on it. And another thing we occasionally do is just go through and do the due diligence on are these bottles, you know, where, where these come from? Are they as unique as they say they are? And that has come up a few times where we've identified a few that somebody's flag is extremely rare and then they've been asking a certain amount of money. And it's just not, not a good investment for the platform. Right. right. And if we were ever to go, let's say, for example, we were going to go and buy some spirits that were owned by a collector. We would first start with looking at that list, evaluating fair market value, having those discussions as a first step. And then we would do a deep dive into sourcing. We would ask them to provide documentation around where they purchase those assets. I would, we, one of us would go on site to their facility, wherever these goods were being stored, inspect the conditions in the storage facility, and we would actually inspect the goods on site. So we would do all of that before we even agreed to transact. And if we were on site, we would pack and collect the goods at that point. So they were never touched <laughs> by that person again, meaning chain of ownership was was basically transferred to Vint at that point. But you know, that's it, to to the extent that we can minimize risk and doubt at every step of the process is just best practice for us. Is there a kind of a time or experience that sticks out in your mind, Adam, where you were able to try a wine that maybe was pristinely stored, perfect provenance, maybe that was a little bit older, that you know, really made a difference in, in your mind, the kind of storage and care that was taken maybe with an older bottle. And you got to enjoy that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are a couple of experiences that stand out just top of mind as you ask that question. I think a few years ago in San Francisco, I was able to participate in a wine dinner that showcased the wines of Chateau Margaux, which is one of the Bordeaux first growths. And these wines were shipped directly from the chateau. When they shipped them, they also included a temperature logger as well. So we could see, and they shared us with us the data. So we could see, you know, the kind of the, the perfect straight line or or relatively narrow band of temperature that the wines experienced while they were in transit. And we had an incredible assortment of wines from the chateau, including uh, 1996 Margot and a 1982 Margot. And when you think about wines that, again, I, I think the difference and the difference in the advantage that 
you get from kind of optimal storage conditions and that impeccable provenance becomes even more clear and important with older wines. So to know, to have the confidence that you are tasting these wines in kind of their best form, best possible form, because those variables have been minimized, I think makes the experience that much more special. I also had a pretty interesting experience this going back maybe 10 or 15 years where I was in Rioja Lopez de Heredia and they produce and, and are known for releasing wines that are much, you know, much older than their peers. And they're a producer of like a very old school Rioja. And I just remember one of the principals was giving us a tour and we were in the cellar and she literally like dusted off this, you know, kind of wiped away this, this thick wall of cellar mold and pulled out this bottle of, you know, white wine from the sixties and opened it in front, front of the group. And we tasted it. It was like one of the most magical white wines that I've ever tasted. And so again, I mean, I won, obviously being in that moment and that, in that experience was very special, but also just knowing that that wine probably had it moved in, you know, 50 years was truly incredible. That's really cool. Are you dusting off a bottle of 1960 something for the holidays? Or is there anything that you're, that you've been storing yourself that you're looking forward to opening? I have some, yeah, I'm actually digging into some Burgundy for the holidays. So we've got some Redbergs from 09 and 10 that we're going to be trying. And champagne is definitely one of my go-tos as well. Don't have any old bottles identified. I like you know, sort of mid-range champagne, but those will be kind of our two to go-to regions for the holidays. Nice. So Adam Adam drinks DRC during the holidays. That's, <laughs> that's what that's the tagline. Are you wanting us to ask you about what you're opening, Brady? Well, I need to find a, a company of people that I can open these things with because um yeah, more of a Coors Light crowd that I hang out with around Thanksgiving, <laughs> which is fine. But, you know, at least Miller Lite is a, you know, champagne of beers. That's a, yeah. Now that you said uh, that is high life, buddy. Oh, high life. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, so for, for those What's listening. The beer of champagnes. The beer, beer of champagne. Corbell. Move. Oh, is that, does it have to be champagne? <laughs> it could be California champagne, quote unquote. <laughs> Schramsberg. I'll have to find that out. But yeah, so for, for our listeners, though, we will have some Thanksgiving recommendations in the, our episode that's released the week of Thanksgiving. So stay tuned and we'll, we'll dive into a little bit more on that. But what I, what I like, Adam, about your stories, one, you mentioned 96 Margot. That is in our Bordeaux Classics collection. We have some of that. So that's great. And when we did our retreat prior to you joining last January, the whole team got to try. It was only a a 10 or 15 year old white Rioja from Lopez de Heredia, but that was still Jordan still talks about that. Our team was actually able to experience that, which was a, so that seems to be a through line with the the Vint team as well. So love both of those. All right. Well, I think that's all for, for this episode, Adam, thank you so much for joining and we'll have updates on upcoming collections soon, but for now stay tuned and we'll have another episode for you guys next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. 
For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.